the earliest recorded version of Three Men in a Tub uh-huh. is actually a little raunchy. Oh, really? Lay it on us. Hey, rub-a-dub-dub ho, rub-a-dub-dub three maids in a tub. And who do you think were there? The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and all of them gone to the fair. What? And of course, like fairs are associated with like all sorts of illicit activities. Yes. So yeah, so that gets kind of censored a little bit by the time it appears in children's nursery rhymes. Now Peter, Piper, pick peppers, but run rock, rock, humpty, dumpty, fell down. That's his heart. Time, Jackie, nimble, what? Nimble, and he was quick, but jam, mass mud, faster, Jacks or Jay's dick. Met a little boy, be cold, lost her sheep, and Rip Van Winkle fell a hell asleep. Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. This week, we'll be talking with Daryl McDaniels from Run DMC about Peter Piper, the opening track from their 1986 blockbuster album, Raising Hell. Also joining us is folklorist and children's literature expert, Jennifer Shacker. Dr. Shacker is a professor of English at the University of Guelph in Toronto and authored the 2018 book, Staging Fairyland. Folklore, Children's Entertainment, and 19th Century Pantomime. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Peter Piper, The Folklore of Nursery Rhymes. Hello, Daryl and Jennifer. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Daryl, I shit you not, I listen to Raising Hell or King of Rock probably every day after school during the third and fourth grade. So I'm a little starstruck to say the least. Wow. Um, Third and fourth grade. Third and fourth That's grade. Awesome. Wow. Yeah. I had the Run DMC button on my jacket. I had the Run DMC Beastie Boys Together Forever tour t shirt I wore all the time. Yep. Yep. I drew the Run DMC logo anywhere I could. <laughs> and in fact, my, my Run DMC obsession was so well known that one day a classmate of mine mm-hmm. showed up at my house and he had your autograph made out to me on the inside of a Cracker Jack box. Really? How'd he get it? He saw me somewhere? He said he saw you at a Mets game. Oh, wow. Yep. Okay. It's, yeah, okay. it says to Matt DMC. Wow. Yeah. So anyhow, I mean, your music is, I'm a musician. Your music mm-hmm. has been so foundational for me. You know, I think my taste in music today and what I like about a song in so many ways is rooted to how you guys made records, you know? Right, right. And 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 Peter Piper is definitely my favorite track on Raising Hell. It gives me goosebumps every time I hear that song start, you know? Yeah, we, we just wanted to make feel-good, fun music because at the time, hip-hop and rap, it was considered black ghetto music. And... It was funny because, you know, the message in the early hip hop was a message. It was saying, this is how it is here. But it was so depressing. You know what I'm saying? It was Mm -hmm. like, it was all this darkness and destruction and death. But I came from a point of, you know, even in the dirt poor ghetto, there's some good. You know what I'm saying? There's lollipops and there's Mm -hmm. soda and there's cold water and... There's comic books and TV shows and you can ride your bike. And at the time, nobody in hip hop was talking about those things. So it seemed like once the message came out, everybody's perception of life in New York City was, oh, it's hell up in Harlem everywhere. Now, those elements did exist, but, you know, kids played basketball and they they opened up the uh, the fire hydrant and played in the sprinklers and stuff like that. So we was like, 
Man, they making it seem like our whole existence is just dark and nothing but death, you know. But there was pushers and pimps and all of that. But I was like, nobody's making happy songs. You know, mm -hmm. I grew up listening to 70s rock radio, folk rock and what's considered classic rock now. And it was guys like Jim Croce mm -hmm. and Harry Chapin and Joni Mitchell and Bob Dylan. And they made music about you know, life, everything. Even the Beatles, when they did We in the Town Where I Was Born, Lift, they did Yellow Submarine. So I was like, why is nobody making happy music? So Randy mm -hmm. MC wanted to make happy music that was kind of, um, I guess, inspiring um, a, a, a bit of happiness in dark times, like nursery rhymes and poems and all the books we read growing up. Hmm. So when you guys wrote it, was it all just drawing from your own experience and memory? Or did you have to be like, oh, we got to consult this source because I'm... I, I Well, no, no. The, the motivation behind Peter Piper is really funny. UTFO did this song. UTFO, who did the Roxanne, Roxanne song. Um, Kango wrote this song called um, Fairy Tale Love. So Run wrote it because UTFO went from doing hip hop to singing R&B slow jams. So Run, he heard Fairy Tale Love and he was like, what are these guys doing? So it just gave him the idea to say, yo, let's do a hip hop song and, and use nursery rhymes. And you know, at the time Run DMC was rhyming about everything. We were just waking up in the morning going, hey, let's make a rock song. You know, we made rock box, we made King of Rock. We was gonna make, mm -hmm. we was gonna sample walk this way but rick rubin said no do the record over the way the band originally did it so we were just doing all this spontaneous stuff so run was like yo let's do a song and um let's do a hard hard beat and, and talk about nursery rhymes <laughs> you know to, to, to go at kangol in them and that was really the motivation behind it oh wow you know, I, I read somewhere that music critics of the time were, you know, who were critical of rap music, yeah. were likening it to nursery rhymes, just kind of dismissing yeah. it as nursery rhymes. Were you aware of that? It was, yeah, it was simple. It, it, was, it was so simple back then. And it was like, um, you know, and that being said, it's funny that we were influenced by, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill, you know, fetch a pail of water, all of that. The if you listen to the especially if you listen to hip hop before it was recorded, I'm talking about before rappers delight. We stole every nursery rhyme, every fable, every roses are red, violets are blue. Uh, um, little Jack Horner said we stole. We were. It, it's amazing that it, we didn't consi consider it stealing. Though we was imitating, we was emulating. We was recreating all of those stories that we heard as kids, but we was putting it in um, a scenario that could be relatable to what was going on in the park, in the basements, in the homes, and in the streets of the towns we live in. But it's funny. No, it was nursery rhymes. Like if you listen to early hip hop, I'm talking about before Rappers Delight. And then when Rappers Delight came out, of the majority of those songs from Curtis Blow to Jimmy Spicer, we said, you know, Jack and Jill went up the hill and Little Jack Horner. We used nursery rhymes to create our own genre. Mm. 
Because in the beginning, before we got to the point where you can write your individual personalized presentation, and before rappers of light, every if you went to a block party or house party or park party, almost every rapper said the same rhyme over and over. They were saying the same thing in Brooklyn that they were saying in the Bronx, same thing in the Bronx that they were saying in Staten Island. And the majority of it was starting out with a nursery rhyme to set it off. Wow. And this is, I mean, you can you can study hip hop and document the multitude of times that the, the, the MCs who rap, we wasn't rappers, we were MCs, the masters of ceremonies. So the point of that being, we had to say things that was familiar to the audience. And everybody knows nursery rhymes. And you know, you know, it's funny, we wanted, me and Run wanted to do something dynamic, but we couldn't get the Peter Piper fairy tale to fit right. So we just said, okay, we're going to do the typical Run DMC um we did Peter Piper, Pepper. Peter Piper picked Pepper yes. for Run Rock Rhymes. Humpty Dumpty fell down. This is our time. Shaq me nimble was nimble and he was quick, but Jam Master must have. We did it like that with that energy because we said, here's the, here's the truth. Man, yo, that Peter Piper rhyme is crazy, man. That wordplay, we can't get that. <laughs> yeah. So we had to sit there and figure out how could we be as dynamic as the, the rich, because that. Peter Piper picked the pepper, pickle, pickle. There was no way we was getting that on, on there. I mean, we probably could have if we would have really put our head to it. But it was like, it was almost like paying homage to it, not necessarily yeah. disrespecting it, but doing something different so that we don't take the shine off of him. So the, 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 mm. the nursery rhyme stings that always has been done in hip hop is you can use it, but you better not disrespect it. And I think that's the beauty of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and I'm also really curious just about the music part of it, how the mm -hmm. music for that track came along. Like, so that main, the main sample is from a Bob James track called Take Me to the Mardi Gras, right? Take Me to the Mardi Gras, yep. The bells, because the first of all, the, the bells sound nursery rhyme-ish. Ding, ding. Like, you know what I'm saying? We wasn't going to have no um, heavy metal guitars. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Because the, 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 the record, even though it was hot, it was a it was an energetic, spontaneous explosion of rhyme. You know what I'm saying? It was, and, and it's funny, the, the early critics, they, they was criticizing, but it was rhyme. Like, I, our influences is, is Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss is the greatest rapper ever. Not Eminem, not Jay-Z, not Run, Dr. Seuss. His flow, the, his use of words, and the greatest raps were nursery rhymes. You know what I'm saying? So when we was doing the record, we said we're going to use the heavy 808. You know, the 808 mm -hmm. um, sample drum. Boom. You know what I'm saying? That, that's going to rock the world. But nursery rhymes and the story that we was trying to tell, we was trying to say Jay is cooler than all of these guys. Mm. Jay is cooler than the Pod Piper. He's cooler than Jack and Jill. He's cooler than there was an old man, who, um, this old man who had a dog. Every nursery rhyme in existence, the, the energy was to say Jay is cooler than all of these fables and stories that you hear. But to make it friendly, and not scary. And not, we're not trying to kill little Miss Muffet who sat on a tuffet eating her curds and whey. We like her. 
but she's not cooler than Jay. So for Bob James to brilliantly create this song that had, it, it was funky, it was soulful, it was rocking, it was the perfect setup. Why? There was no other sample that we could use to put with Peter Piper to make it friendly, to make it kitty, so that the old person, by hearing the bells, they'll listen to Run DMC and be like, why are they dissing Jack? <laughs> but then they'll remember at the end of the song, they get happy because they have their memories. So the bells was friendly. Oh, that's wild. I never thought of that. Yeah, it was friendly. You know, those those nursery rhymes were friendly. Um, 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 you know, along came a spider and sat down beside her. You know, nursery rhymes were kind of harsh, you know, a little scary. Yeah. But it had this friendly vibe. At the end of it, you would get over the trauma. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, yo, if we don't put these bells in there, people might be traumatized. You know what I'm saying? So we didn't want to hurt nobody. <laughs> and I mean, maybe I'm, I'm getting too technical, but I'm going to uh -huh. hit myself if I don't ask you these questions. Yeah, I have the opportunity. So do you remember how it came about putting that together? Like, had you guys used that track before? Was that just a result oh. of crate digging? And yeah, it's crate digging. Um, prior to us using it for the record, every DJ in history, Cool Herc, Grandmaster Flash, Grand Wizard Theodore, Grand Mixer DST, DJ Charlie Chase, DJ Easy Lee, every DJ Jam Master J, Africa Bambata, Davey DM, every DJ in history, when they played a birthday party, park party, um, block party, house jam, wherever they played their music at, those were the records that we utilized to tell our stories. Mm. We didn't sit down and say, um, oh, let's make Walk This Way. We didn't do Walk This Way to, to bring rock and rap together and get get the rock people to like us and we didn't particularly do it to bring black people and white people together we did it because walk this way was a great breakbeat for us to tell our stories and I, I think for the listener to understand it was all about us telling our stories a lot of the stories in early hip-hop and even now a lot of the stories were make-believe you know, if you listen to Rapper's Delight, we rapped about stuff. We we wrote about stuff we wanted. We wish we had a color TV. We wish we had a Lincoln Continental. You know what I'm saying? We wish we could go see the Knicks. So it's just, uh, it's, it's it was all fantasy, but it's amazing that all of that came true. So in the same way, when you was a kid and you heard these nursery rhymes, not only were you hearing them, but nursery rhymes were so powerful that if somebody said it, you could visualize what was going on. What did these things look like? So these were stories, you know, Little Miss Muffin and Jack and Jill. And we were creating our own stories the same way stories have always been told to us. Peter Piper just flipped it. We inserted ourselves as the dominant factor in all of these stories that we now, yeah. Jack and Jill ain't cool no more. Little Miss Muffin ain't cool no more. You know, whatever it is, you know what I'm saying? Now we the dominant forces. But it's funny how we could do that and people that live in New York City could relate to what was going on. The only connecting thing that made it uh, receivable and understandable was everybody's nose nursery rhymes 
So, well, the, and you know, this is something else I meant to ask because it's all about Jay and it's intro- like is introducing a member of the group or hyping another member. Was that an early part of hip hop tradition? Yes. Yeah, the, the whole the whole thing is now the front man, the rapper is gets all the accolades and all the praise. There's no hip hop if there's no DJ. The DJ is the foundation. The DJ is the heartbeat, the nucleus. The DJ is the spirit of hip hop. So we had to make these records all about Jay because the name of the group was Run DMC. This is before videos and album covers too. So if we Mm -hmm. show up at a, you know, we was opening for Parliament Funkadelic. We was opening for Marvin Gaye. We was opening for ZZ Top. (laughs) We was opening for Lou Reed, right? So they heard the music, but there was no album covers or videos. So we would show up. People would look and go, okay, running DMC. What the hell is the guy in the back doing (laughs) playing records? So we said, we got you. Creatively (laughs) and innovatively, we was going to make records to explain who the guy was in the back there. Uh. So a creative way to do it with your attention is, yo, let's do a record with nursery rhymes and talk about Jay. Jay's yeah. like King Midas, as I was told. Now, everybody know the King Midas story, right? Whatever you touch mm-hmm. turns to gold. But everything Jay touched was really turning to gold from a gold record standpoint. You know what I'm saying? He's the greatest of the great kids. So we was using stories. Like, it, it's different. It would have been much harder for people to understand what was going on. If I would have just came on and said, no, Jam Master Jay is the DJ. He plays vinyl records that me and Run sing our songs over. You wouldn't understand that. You can't You can't picture that. But if we put the beat on, if Jay's doing it while we're singing stuff and we got familiar things from the nursery rhymes that we all grew up running through your brain, it makes it, it, it breaks down the little wall of, you know, it, it makes you easier to comprehend what's going on. So... We had to use, creatively use these jingles, nursery rhymes, Aesop's fables, all of that stuff. So y'all can understand what the hell we was doing. <laughs> the breaks and the cuts on that song are yes. so legendary. I mean, is that something he, that he did? or In the studio, like- yeah. He DJed live. A lot of people will use um, computerized, computer-generated sounds and all Everything Run DMC did, Jay always actually used with the turntable. Every mm. every stab, every horn, bang! Mm-hmm. You know, we didn't do a lot of times. You'll send, you'll take the keyboard, you'll run it through the sampler, and you'll use one of the keys on the keyboard to go bam, 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 bam. You just hit the mm-hmm. key. No, everything Jay did, he did with the record and, and the crossfader. Bam, bam, bam. He did it with his hands. You know what I'm saying? Because one of the things that we wanted to do, we wanted to do exactly what we was doing in the streets of New York, we wanted to do that on a record. Like the early rap records, but what happened was Rappers Delight was just good times. But Sylvia Robinson, who was the CEO of Sugar Hill Records, she could have let the Sugar Hill gang rap over the actual good times by Chic in the studio. But mm. from a record-making standpoint, she said, no, what I'm going to do is I'm going to bring a band in. And the band, a lot of musicians, is going to recreate good times, and then they'll come and rap over it. We didn't want to do that because then we wanted to, to be able to distinguish between actual bands that made the music that we were stealing 
<laughs> but we wanted people to understand it's an art form for Jay to really take the chic record that's already made in the store, put two of those on the turntables and watch him hold us down for two hours in a concert. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So we always wanted people to understand that, okay, so what? We might never get in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but all of those iconic artists that made all of those iconic songs, and if they left one space on that record where their beautiful music could allow me to keep that part going so I could tell my story, then it's all good for us. So uh, Grandmaster Kaz of the Cold Crush 4 of Seas, he said, hip-hop didn't invent anything. We reinvented everything. We reinvented nursery rhymes. We reinvented funk. We reinvented rock and roll. You know what I'm saying? And, and you are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> finally, they let us in. But it was just, it was a way, if you listen to all of those records, we always used stuff that was universally relatable. And, and even more so for Run DMC, we did stuff that would, wouldn't just be like for it wasn't just for black people in the ghetto it wasn't just for my homeboys it was for the little J japanese kid in japan it was for the little german kid in germany it was for the little kid living in new mm -hmm. orleans we wanted to make universally understandable and relatable songs so that everybody can enjoy it just like everybody was enjoying Led Zeppelin and the Beatles and Parliament Funkadelic. We, we, yeah. we, we looked up to those people. So the same way we looked up to James Brown and um, um, Rush, you know, we sampled mm -hmm. Rush's Tom Sawyer. We sampled Led Zeppelin's When the Levy Breaks. The same way we looked up to these people as artists, it's the same way we looked up and respected the creators of those nursery rhymes. They gave us our inspiration. Mm. Jennifer, where, where were you in, in your studies when this record came out or when you first heard this song? I was an undergrad, so I wasn't in folklore yet. And I'm still marveling at the fact that my career brought me to this <laughs> podcast. This right, is awesome. No, it's amazing. It's amazing. It's crazy, I'm so right. happy to be here because I was, I was a real fan. And <laughs> this has been so interesting to hear like Daryl's mm -hmm. account of this because I think uh, it just shows like how much you understood then and understand now, like the way folklore works, right? The sort of relationship yes. between things that are kind of frozen in one form, whether it's a record or a mm. book, which our culture tends to see as like the real thing, right? And then the sort of creative repurposing of this whole shared right. repertoire of material, which is what rap does but it's also of course what children do right children don't care about mm -hmm. like you know the real thing or you know the thing that's been given right. that sort of seal of approval by commercial culture they'll repurpose commercial jingles they'll repurpose nursery rhymes they'll repurpose just about any material that comes their way creatively for their own purposes and so mm -hmm. yeah that didn't quite answer yeah. your question but yeah i was i was pretty young not not as young as matt but it's been really fascinating to hear to hear the way you're talking about this, Daryl, because I think it corresponds so well with the way folklorists think about that relationship between, well, in my case, like mm -hmm. print culture and oral culture. The folklore stories come, it's passed down generationally, right? Yeah. Although, you know, it's really funny because this category that our culture calls nursery rhyme actually encompasses mm -hmm. a whole bunch of stuff. So some of it is oral traditional 
and has been, you know, passed along, but also at various points in time put into collections, so put into print, sometimes illustrated, sometimes appearing with sheet music because some nursery rhymes are associated with melodies. But that category of nursery rhyme also includes things that do have um, definite literary sources. Like, so there are some specific collections of verse for children that nursery rhymes we know well right now come from. And then there are things like drinking songs that ended up as nursery rhymes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then they're like, you know, political sort of jingles that we're passing around. There are things that come from broadside ballads. So, like 17th and 18th century popular print documents of ballads with multiple stanzas where just one stanza gets isolated and ends up in nursery rhyme collections. So nursery rhymes are really kind of fluid, baggy kind of category. It's not it's not like we can just mm. define a nursery rhyme is basically whatever the culture of our time says it is. It's a really mm. flexible right. category. Yep. Okay. What can you tell us about any of the characters that uh, appear in Daryl's song? Oh my gosh, there are so many, right? The thing I love, I'll just say to begin with before I get into some of the specific characters, is that I think the song taps so well into this notion of a repertoire, right? And Daryl was already talking about how rap artists drew on a repertoire of like characters and rhythms and Mm -hmm. rhyme schemes and so on. But the repertoire in this particular song includes things that we might readily call nursery rhyme, but also... Also, some fairy tale characters. There's one, um, you know, popular advertising jingle that's in there. Tricks are for kids. There's some fa- works of fantasy. So we've got like an Alice in Wonderland reference. Like it's a bunch of different things, but mm-hmm. all of those are part of a, a repertoire that kids would have and that young adults at the time would also have. So like the, I think the key line in the song is like, "You all know how the story goes, right? You all know. Mm-hmm. So we can just reference these." In passing, yep. and you've got yeah, all yeah. these, you can fill it in, fill you in the blanks. Oh, no, how to store free go. <laughs> right. And so that notion that you can have this sort of shorthand and it indexes this familiar repertoire, I think is really, really interesting. Um, right. Who should we talk right. about? Well, what about Peter Piper? Yeah, Peter Piper. So Peter Piper obviously is a tongue twister. And Peter Piper makes appearances in collections that are labeled as nursery rhyme. And I should say, first of all, that even that term nursery rhyme, it has a long history, but not not an incredibly long history. It goes back to the beginning of the 1800s. So before that, there are other books that would have what we now would call nursery rhymes, but they tended to just call them songs or ditties or, you know, just children's melodies. Mm -hmm. Um, Ditty. Yeah, just a little ditty. Just a little ditty (laughs) about Jack and Diane. Yeah, yeah. Peter Piper, as a tongue twister, makes appearances in other kinds of books, like elocution manuals, right? To teach people how to speak clearly. And I think, you know, something like Peter Piper is interesting because it kind of points to the fact that so many nursery rhymes are kind of about the delight of saying it, right? They're not really about the storyline, but they're so fun to say or challenging. So that's, right. I mean, Peter Piper is the perfect yep. sort of character to be in the title because this is all about verbal virtuosity. Like this is what we can do. This is what we can do with language. And it's amazing. Yeah, right. exactly. Amazing wordplay. Another thing is, were these stories, I mean, it's funny that you said, um, you know, um, bar songs, you know, <laughs> people get drunk, just get happy and make stuff up. But, but what was intriguing to me is the, the mention of the character, but then to see how they were illustrated, it kind of makes you think that 
they were based mm. on real people. Yeah. You know, was the writer or the creative and inspired by something they saw, you know what I'm saying? So it was always like we we tried to put J Jason Mizell's Jason Mizell, but we tried to put the character Jam Master J into folklore eternity. Like yeah. you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like yeah, when you yeah. when you th when you think of all of these, all the characters in from Little Miss Muffet to everybody, we wanted as you go down the line and then you get to this part of it, just a guy. It's not only who is Jay, but what is this Jay? What is it? What does Jam master me? Because Peter Piper, the names were so captivating, and we always thought that you know nursery rhymes was based on real people. Like we said, the same way we created a Jam Master Jay. Somebody had to base Jack and Jill on two people that they would see. Oh, I, when I was a little kid, I always watched this young girl and this young boy uh -huh. go get water for their parents. You know what I'm saying? It seems like it always comes from a real aspect of life. That was the mm -hmm. whole thing that captivated us about these nursery rhymes. It, these people seem real to us. I mean, there have been attempts to try to trace nursery rhymes to some specific historic moment. And most of those kind of fall short. Mm -hmm. They don't actually hold up. Mm -hmm. The only one right. I know of where those who have researched its background think it probably related to a specific historical event is Little Jack Horner. Really? Um, so you, you know that one? Yeah, sat in the corner. corner. Yeah, you got it. Eating a Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, what a good boy am I? Well, there was a guy named Thomas Horner who was representing some land that was that was owned by the church. And he was sent, the story goes, he was sent to Henry VIII with a pie that had the deed to the land oh, wow. inside the pie. What? <laughs> so, so some people think that little Jack Horner may be referring to this kind of, what became a kind of legendary event of sort of hiding the deed to this land in a pie and delivering it to the king. Right. You know, who knows? Like, there's no way to prove that. And in a way, it almost doesn't matter you know, the very fact, yeah, right. Why do we keep telling this? Not because we're going, oh, yes, we really want to remember this historic event when Henry VIII had a pie with a deed inside it. Like that doesn't really do much for us now. But I think, right. you know, I mean, I had a really vivid vision as a kid of that nursery rhyme and a mm -hmm. kid sticking their fingers straight into a pie. Mm -hmm. And that just seemed like so transgressive, right? right? Like mm -hmm. it's everything you're not supposed to do as a kid. You don't stick your thumb yep. <laughs> directly mm -hmm. into a pie. So the idea that like lots of nursery rhymes actually just have these kinds of, they might be delightful to say, delightful to recite, but sometimes their content also kind of breaks social rules in ways that we really like to say because we feel kind of naughty saying them as kids. Mm. So that might be an example, yeah. And what about Jack yeah. and Jill? You yeah, Jack and Jill and, and the cow jumped over the moon, the, the candlestick, Jack jump over the candlestick, all of that. That is thought to perhaps relate to some calendar customs. So there was this idea among some folklorists, especially in the last century, those who liked to trace origins of things like nursery rhymes, that the custom of jumping across Britain, of jumping over a candle as a kind of, it was a game, but also a kind of divination. Like if you could, you know, clear the candle, gather up all your skirts and jump over the candle, oh. that it would bring good fortune, things like that. So it may, right. yeah. A lot right, of them have to do with games, right? Wow. Like we we recite a lot of nursery rhymes when we're playing games. So like London Bridge right. or Ring Around the Rosie, all of those we associate with like physical games as kids as well. 
All of this stuff was used in him. I'm not a lot of people didn't record it, but if you would have came to a live show, oh, it uh-huh. was filled with nursery rhymes. That's so interesting. There's an ethnomusicologist at uh, the University of Albany named Kira Gaunt. She she wrote an article and she also has a book and I, I think it's the same title, but it's the it's called the games that black girls play. And she uh-huh. talks about like how double mm-hmm. dutch in a lot of these games informed how hip hop was delivered. For sure. Any of those games that come up, Daryl, like from your memory of being a kid that you would have heard or, or used in, in your own lyrics? I mean, not me per se, but I'm sure, man, if you sat down and you talked to Curtis Blow and Melly Mel and Africa Bambata and you talked to those early MCs, the early MCs or the early rappers, they used everything, everything we Everybody experienced as a child, it has been re reinvented or reproduced and represented in rock and roll. You know what I'm saying? If you listen mm-hmm. to a lot of the rock and roll songs of the 50s and 60s, we were stealing the cadences and mm. the arrangement of all the nursery rhymes that we grew up. It wasn't like these guys just created it out of nowhere. Somewhere in the back of your mind, that flow that story, that presentation, the arrangement of your lyrics was all from nursery rhymes. And it's the familiarity that makes it catchy. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Here's a classic one. Old MacDonald had a farm. I forgot what group (laughs) did it. It might have been Zulu Nation or somebody. But they used to take the record Apache by the Magnificent Bongo Band. And they used to go, Old MacDonald had a farm. Boom. We, the, the funny thing that I'm realizing, not only did we change them, sometimes we just use them as is. I remember mm-hmm. all of these. Yeah. That's crazy. What are you looking at right now? I just went online and pulled up the best nursery rhymes. And the ones popped up, um, um, the ghetto boy, Scarface from the ghetto boys, he did the itsy bitsy spider went up the wall to spout. Oh, and he nice. was talking about a spider that was in the ghetto inside the drug house. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so uh-huh. it, it made, and that was beautiful about the ghetto boys. The ghetto boys, I don't consider them gangster rap because the majority of gangster rap is just ignorant, disrespectful, and profane. But what was good about the ghetto boys, they, you know, they took mine playing tricks on me. They talked about Halloween. They did. They fit in the folklorist nursery rhyme concept so that their explanation of of street life wouldn't be as frightening yeah you know what i'm saying um Mm -hmm. nursery rhymes had a way of taking frightening realities made them and nursery rhymes had a way Mm -hmm. of always doing that for you as a kid you know because you know kids are just as stressed out as politicians and ceos (laughs) you know saying these these mental health issues so I think these nursery rhymes gave us a way of understanding our existence. Yeah, I think that's right on the mark. And nursery rhymes are just full of pretty, I mean, if you just listed the topics that appear in nursery rhymes and fairy tales, it's dismal, yes. right? So like it's, you know, cannibalism, yep. and abandonment and, you know, all sorts of things that if you just, if you just talked about them straight on would be right, overwhelming. Exactly. And um, it's, it's interesting that, you know, it's one of those forms that we're so familiar with that allows us this kind of way of approaching mm-hmm. difficult topics in a, you know, in, in a way that makes them manageable. And sometimes also strategically, you can talk about things that you, right. you know, maybe can't talk exactly. about directly. Right. 
Um, and there's a really long history of that. So one example that I'm reminded of while you were talking is the accumulative rhyme. Mm -hmm. um, this is the house that Jack no. built. It, it can be really long. It sort of depends. Like each line can add on to the next. Um, so this is the house that Jack built. And then you can add, you know, this is this is the cream that's in the house that Jack built. And this is the cat that drank mm. the cream that's in the house that Jack built. And it can be really long. So it can be like a game, really like test your memory, or it can be competitive. But it also um, goes way back in terms of being oh. parodied for political purposes by adults, right? So adults have been reusing fairy tales for their own purposes yeah. for a really long time. So the example I was just thinking of um, is almost exactly 200 years old. It's from 1819. And there was a little pamphlet that was published called The Political House That Jack Built oh, wow. that was illustrated. It was illustrated by George Cruikshank, who was actually the English illustrator who first illustrated Grimm's fairy tales mm. um, a few years later. So he was known for both very political kind of caricatures in his illustration, but then also for oh, really? fairy tales and nursery rhymes. So those two things go hand in and hand. The brothers Grimm back. were, were they English or German? They were German, but they found some of their first success oh. with readers in England in the first English translation, which comes from the 1820s. And then they then they started to get a bigger audience in Germany. But the political house that Jack built is published in 1819. And this is the same year as the Peterloo Massacre, which was an instance that kind of reverberates right now. There were there were crowds of like fifty to sixty thousand Britons who'd gathered to demand a reform uh -huh. of parliamentary representation. Uh -huh. They wanted the vote and they were attacked oh, wow. by, by British mm -hmm. cavalry. So their own military turned on them. And this, this pamphlet was written using wow. this nursery rhyme to mm. talk about political events. So it's a, you know, it's a radical pamphlet illustrated by someone who was going to become famous wow. for his fairy tale illustrations. But it kind of reminds us that we didn't just invent this association of these like quote unquote nursery materials for political and social commentary, mm. we're part of a really long tradition doing this. And we kind of have a bit of cultural amnesia. Like we kind of forget sometimes mm. that this has been going on a really long time. We turn to the materials of childhood to comment on some of the most pressing like social and political issues yeah. and for fun as well, right? I mean, that's undeniable. I don't want to like be the heavy here, mm. but it's, but it definitely is part of the tradition and has been for centuries. I may be making a connection where there is none, but are you guys familiar with the the first John Lennon solo album, uh, Plastic Ono Band? Mm -hmm. I think it's the first song is Do You Remember? It's this really cool song. That period in his life, he was very publicly doing this therapy called primal scream therapy. And he was, he was singing right. a lot about his traumas as a child. Right. And in those lyrics, I think he deals with a lot of that. And again, this may be a reach, but the very end of the song ends with this lyric followed by the sound of a bomb exploding. And he says, remember the 5th of November, which is Guy Fawkes Day. Mm -hmm. oh. And I just thought of that because yeah. of English insurrection. Mm -hmm. And um, mm -hmm. again, perhaps making a connection where there is none, but I just went childhood, yep. music, trauma, mm -hmm. England. Yep. And play, right? You know, because there's, there's a lot of like traditions that have to do with play that have to, you know, in these commemoration events, right? We commemorate, but we also play as we commemorate. And then, so it, you were starting to talk about some of the uh, the symbols and themes that come up in these. Can you tell us a little bit from an academic's perspective, how they're classified and if, if there is any such thing? Yeah. So, I mean, if we segue from talking about nursery rhymes to talking about fairy tales, which are more full-blown stories, mm -hmm. um, 
there, there are you know, ways of classifying them that were developed um, in the early 20th century um, in terms of tail types. So that's the idea that there are recurrent plots that are told mm-hmm. with variation. And it allowed for cross-cultural analysis of stories. So stories that you know, have similar basic plot elements can be classified together and then analyzed together. Early folklorists also looked at motifs. So those are mm. smaller narrative units, like little memorable things that can move from one story or one tale type to another. So like the magic mirror in Snow White, right? So we associate that so strongly with that story, but that is a motif and could be used elsewhere and has been used in other other stories. So motifs and tale types can be really useful um, for certain kinds Mm -hmm. of analysis. Folklorists now tend to be more interested in how things are actually used, right? So we're really interested in when a story is told, or a nursery rhyme is recited, looking not so much at its origins or you know comparing it to other cultures, but looking at the specific people who actually use and tell nursery rhymes or, or fairy tales and thinking about performance. Like what do we actually do mm-hmm. socially when we bring one of these stories or rhymes you know, back into circulation? Why is it being told? What purposes is it serving? Who's the audience? Those kinds of those kinds of questions. And then we were talking about what makes things catchy or more memorable. Would that be the incentive to reinsert a motif? The scholar Stith Thompson, who created this giant motif index, basically used that word memorable, right? Motifs are interesting because they're not quite ordinary. There has to be something a little extraordinary about them, something that makes them memorable and that makes them sort of potent. Like there's mm-hmm. something intriguing about them. So for instance, like the one nursery rhyme that's mentioned in the song, Hansel and Gretel, which mm-hmm. comes from the Grimm's fairy tales, it can be classified in terms of its tale type, but it also has a number of motifs right. that appear in the Grimm's version of the story. So like even the motif of, of the hero pretending to right. you know, pretending to be ignorant in order to slay the mm. the villain—that's a motif. So when when you know when Hansel pretends or Gretel pretends, depending on the telling, uh, pretends that they don't know whether the oven is ready, and they have the witch lean in and then they push her in. Mm, right. Um, that is right. a portable kind of motif that can appear in different places. Then there's also just the motif of you know roasting usually the ogre in his mm-hmm. own oven, in this case, the witch in her own oven. That's mm-hmm. also a motif that can appear in different places. And these are the things that kind of stick. They're also the kinds of things that when these aren't told orally, but are put into book version, usually get illustrated, right? We think like, what's the memorable right. moment from a story? Like what sticks with us? And sometimes it is that kind of motif that just has something in it that we can't even define. Like, why is that get us in the gut? But, or why is it so satisfying or, or weird? And it's funny. I mean, it's crazy because nursery rhymes can be dark because I see that horror movies now have a, a tendency to have the little kids singing the nursery rhyme. Oh, I know. Time. I know. That's supposed to be the creepiest thing That's ever, right? so creepy. Now I'm like scared to listen to it. Don't sing that in here. <laughs> but it's, it's so funny how broad based it's very um, social, very cultural, but it's also very spiritual, too. Yeah, it can be, right? It all depends how things are told. Because the same story that could be horrific could be hilarious, right? Like we can tell something as funny or as like just absurd, or we can tell it really Mm -hmm. seriously. And, you know, good storytellers can move between those those registers. And I think I think by using nursery rhymes and horror films, it draws you in. It's your friendly, oh, I know Mm -hmm. that. And then it flips Mm -hmm. on you. 
So it's that shock value of using something that yeah. is so universal to to shock you. But it's like I said, as soon as you hear a, 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 a nursery, I know that I'm familiar with that. So it break. I think it, it breaks down a lot of walls too, which is something that music does. You know, mm-hmm. what separates a nursery rhyme from a fairy tale, among other things, is that it has to have has a rhyme, rhyme within right. it. Yeah, there and there actually are some fairy tales that have rhymes in them. Is there a nursery rhyme that doesn't have a rhyme? Hmm. I can't I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but I'd have to Most of them have that's why they call them nursery rhymes. Yeah, Peter Piper. Oh yeah, it doesn't. Right? So the tongue twisters don't necessarily have rhymes. Um they just have they just have interesting arrangements of And the reason why I asked that it was uh, me and Rick Rubin, we tried for 30 years to do it. Nobody was ever to do it. Chuck D a public enemy. Mm-hmm. who I think is the greatest rapper ever. But um, on their first album, <clears throat> he did one of the most incredible things. Me and Rick Ribbon, we, we would try to do it. We tried to do it for Raising Hell. Every time we see each other, we try to do it. And it can't be done. Chuck D, and the reason why I say, is there a nursery rhyme that doesn't rhyme? <laughs> Chuck D, he did a rap rhyme that didn't rhyme. And it's so powerful. He did it to explain his persona as the front man of Public Enemy. The beat was going, boo, boo, bet, boo, 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 bet. He said, I'm so versatile, say it without rhyme, which is why they after me and they're on my back, looking over my shoulder to see what I'm writing. They hear what I say and they want to know why, why they can't never compete on my level. Superstar status is my domain. Understand my rhythm, my pattern of lecture, and then you'll know I'm number one. And with that booming voice it was like wow Wow. (laughs) he said it over the beat and it it went better it didn't rhyme but it went over a beat better than every rhyme and it was just like it feels like it does yeah right all because of the rhythm but it's funny um jennifer you just said peter piper i mean doesn't rhyme yeah it's a tongue twist. it doesn't rhyme but it's still it still just delights in language like it's you know there's this there's this model that was developed um just to get technical for a minute, but this this linguist Roman Jakobson developed a communication model that looked at all the different functions of any act of communication. And the idea was that all of these functions are always potentially there, but in any utterance, like anytime we use language, one of these functions is going to come more to the fore than the others. It's going to sort of push the others out of the way. And so you know, he looked at all the different components of what happens when we communicate. There has to be someone sending a message. There has to be someone receiving the message. There has to be context. There has to be like a channel. There has to be a code. And then there's the message itself. And he said, basically, when, when, the, when the message, that is when the language draws attention to itself, that's the poetic function. Like exactly when we, like, we're not thinking about like Peter Piper necessarily. We're just thinking about the sound of the language. It draws attention to itself. And it's just the delight in the language. And that's sort of like that core poetic function that sometimes mm. is what matters more than anything else. It's not referring to something specific. You know, it's not trying to say, you know, some some kinds of communication are all about our connection, right? So I might say, you know what I mean? And that's just a way to sort of bring you in and say, mm-hmm. I know you're there. Right. I know I'm not just yeah. talking into a vacuum. That's when my mm-hmm. communication is sort of more about an interpersonal connection. Mm-hmm. But other times, the beauty of the language, the curiosity of the language is what matters. And that's that poetic function. And so maybe that's what's happening with Peter Piper. It doesn't, it's not about rhyme necessarily. It's about the 
absolute delight in the sound. What was that that uh, system of classification called? Um, well, it doesn't exactly have where did a it come from name, but it comes from Roman Jakobson, and he was part of. He emerges from this Prague school of linguistics that was really active in the 20s and 30s. And then he ended up teaching in the United States mm. and he developed this model through the 50s and 60s and or in the 50s, I guess, because I think he published it in 1960. Okay. Is there anything else that comes to mind that's, that's in that study? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the critiques of that study was that kind of model didn't allow for really thinking about another function and that's play. Mm. So to think about, you know, how play operates when we have verbal play, I mean, when you think about what we do as kids when we play, a lot of it is is social, right? Yeah. There are sort of power dynamics that are going on, figuring out like who gets to define the rules mm -hmm. and, you know, who gets to talk and who gets right. to do stuff. There's so much negotiation that maybe we could use that model even to think about verbal play, to think about how verbal play is sometimes about the poetry if we have got language in our play. Mm -hmm. And it's sometimes about the context, right? Like how we're going to use the social situation. So if you're, a, if you're a city kid, like I am, and like Daryl was, like you think about, you know, what are our resources? Like, you know, so like one of my favorite games as a kid with my neighbors, because all we did was hang out on our, we were in houses, but in the city. So the sidewalk and one kid had a driveway and that driveway had a little curb. And so all our games had to do with like, how do we use the curb and how do yeah. we can use the driveway and you have a tree. And so whatever resources you've got are what you use. Okay, I'm kind of getting away from this model. But still, I think I think we could think about play as again, multifunctional. It does a lot of different kinds of work. And it all depends on the specific example we're looking oh, at. Oh, you know what? That's funny yeah. you say that because remember, engine, um, engine, engine number nine, going down Chicago uh -huh. line. If the train falls yep. off the track, you don't get your money back. That's like shocking. Yeah. <laughs> but as the kid, if, if you know, if you put your feet in and when it landed on you, you, you accepted it. Like, damn, I'm the yeah. one. Yeah. Wait, that's in a black sheep song, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yep, <laughs> exactly. In a black, yep, exactly. And what a ripoff! Yep. If your train goes off the track, you're not even going to get you any don't money, get your back? money. Right? And look that's, how harsh that's that not is. good. Right? <laughs> I'm like, wow, you're going to take these things literally? Wow. Uh, but that's a great right. example. How like if you're talking about like the meaning of that rhyme, right. well, the meaning for the kids who are playing isn't actually in the message like it's not what it's saying right. it's what it's doing right, right? and it's, it's like a counting out rhyme it's it's telling us like how we're gonna play yeah. and so it's actually about the social function there not really about you know it's actual content right. i actually never even thought about the content until you just said right. it and now it, <laughs> now it seems like a profound ripoff you don't get your money back. You yeah <laughs> well honestly i mean it's hard to imagine humans with language not playing with language you know it's sort of part of what we do is, you know, we play with the resources we've got, including whatever language we happen to know. Yeah. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, oh, guys. Thank, thank you. you for having us. Now, like, I'm, I'm so open right now. Like, my mind, I feel like there's so much more that I can do. So that's, thank you, that's man, so for great. connecting me with yeah. Jennifer. And Oh, yes. Thank you so much. It was fascinating. There's so much more to this. Yeah. Well, I feel opened right up after hearing you rap three or four times. <laughs> Be sure to check out Daryl's new song, Fight, produced by Bumpy Knuckles. You can find it on his YouTube channel. In addition to her book, Staging Fairyland, Jennifer is the co-editor of two different anthologies, Feathers, Paws, Fins, and Claws, Fairy Tale Beasts, 
and Marvelous Transformations, an anthology of fairy tales and contemporary critical perspectives. Special thanks to Emily and Mark Striegel, Rhett Sword, Otavio Media, Danny Leo, and TCB Public Relations for helping make today's episode possible. Also, thanks to the following folklorists for contributing. Langston Collins, Kira Gaunt, Tom Mould, William Ferris, Jenna Jorgensen, Jessica Turner, Tyree Smith, Fernando Horohuela, and Glenn Hinson. Sing for Science is co-produced with the Talk House, and our music is by Italian artist Panorama. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to the show and check out our other episodes. Thanks for listening.